early involvement of palliative care services for patients with advanced cancer improves quality of life, increases satisfaction with care, and mitigates depression, as several studies have shown. However, these services are used much less often than they could be, or when they are used, referrals are made late in the course of disease. And although we don't fully know the reasons for late referrals, physicians often cite negative attitudes towards palliative care among patients and caregivers as a reason. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Camilla Zimmerman, Head of the Palliative Care Program at UHN in Toronto, Associate Professor and Rose Family Chair in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, as well as Senior Scientist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. In a research article she co-authored, Dr. Zimmerman conducted interviews with patients and their caregivers in an effort to understand attitudes and perceptions about palliative care. Hello, Camilla. Hi, Matthew. Let's start with a definition of what we're talking about. What exactly is early palliative care and how does it differ from the usual care that a cancer patient might receive? So we should probably start with just a definition of palliative care overall because um, it's changed very much over time. So the most recent uh, definition of palliative care as defined by the World Health Organization is that it's interdisciplinary care that aims to improve quality of life for any patient with a serious illness and their family. Um, and this can begin as early as a diagnosis, a diagnosis of uh, any advanced disease such as uh, cancer, for example. And in our study, the patients uh, had a prognosis of between six months and two years, but they were ambulatory. They were coming back and forth uh, to the hospital and seeing their oncologists at the same time. And most were receiving uh, chemotherapy, so palliative chemotherapy. And usually patients receive palliative care right at the end of life, and many patients don't receive palliative care at all. And if it is received, it's usually in the last eight weeks or so of life. So, so this was different in that we were recruiting patients for our original randomized controlled trial um, before they would usually receive palliative care. So that original trial you just mentioned, the, the present study being published in CMHA is a sub-study of that, but remind us about that trial you published in 2014. What was done in that trial and what you found? So the original trial was a cluster randomized controlled trial where we had we randomized uh, clinics rather than individuals. So 24 medical oncology clinics were randomized either to early palliative care or to control. Um, and this was before recruitment of, of any patients, and it was done off-site actually at Western University. Um, so there were 12 control clinics and 12 early palliative care clinics. And we recruited then a total of 461 patients half received the control, half received the early palliative care. And for all patients, we um, gave them measures of, uh, various measures of quality of life and satisfaction with care monthly for four months. So the trial was over after four months. And our primary endpoint was at three months and uh, secondary endpoints were at uh, four months. And what we found is that quality of life did indeed improve, especially at four months, at three months, there was a trend for improvement, and at four months, there was definitive improvement, um, and satisfaction with care improved both at uh, three months and at four months quite significantly. Now, in the present study, you've recruited a subset of those participants in the original trial for further research of a quite different nature. Tell us what you did in the present study. So the present study was a qualitative study um, using grounded theory. 
And we conducted a total of 71 interviews with patients and caregivers who had completed the trial that I just described. So after they'd completed the trial, uh, we recruited uh, patients and caregivers who were willing to conduct interviews. And we asked them about their perceptions of palliative care um, before the trial and how these had changed, if at all, during the course of uh, the trial. And uh, what the patients said and the caregivers said in this study, I, I thought was quite interesting. First of all, you asked patients and caregivers who were in both of the two study groups about what the term palliative care meant to them. What did they say? So without exception, pretty much, all of them said that for them, palliative care meant death. So, and, and one patient actually said there's no real meaning besides death. So this was very much something that came out in both the control and the intervention uh, groups. Um, and in fact, in, in this particular question that we asked, there was really no difference between uh, the control and intervention participants givers. Um, so death was a prominent theme. Uh, loss of hope was another theme that there was nothing else to do and nothing more that could be done. Um, that was when palliative care uh, came in. Being incapacitated and bedridden was uh, something else. So it's sort of this picture of someone who's lying in bed with an IV attached, uh, an IV with morphine, I should add. And then it being a place, a place where you go to die. And, and typically palliative care units and hospices uh, were, and, and particularly hospice in general, was brought up as, as a word. Uh, and then a, group, a subgroup as well had actually no idea what palliative care even meant. One patient said, is it, is it Greek or Latin for something? What does that even mean? So, so that was interesting as well, that some people just had no idea what palliative care meant at all. And who did patients and caregivers identify as being responsible for creating this impression that palliative care equals death and hospice is in the end? Uh, th that was interesting because we asked that specifically. And... Again, th there was two main uh, sources. Uh, one source was from the healthcare system. So either from their own experiences with uh, physicians and nurses, and a lot of them uh, had had previous experiences in that most people who get cancer are in their 50s or 60s or 70s. So they've had experiences taking care of, for example, um, aging parents or friends or relatives. And really, it's, so it's us as physicians and nurses and healthcare workers in general who are giving patients and their caregivers this impression of palliative care being end-of-life um, care. And then, of course, also uh, the patients uh, were, and caregivers were currently receiving care. So there was, um, as well, they also had a, an impression from their caregivers, their medical caregivers at the time who were creating this impression for them. And another prominent source was the media. So they said that the media uh, almost always portrayed palliative care as being end-of-life care, and all the images they had of palliative care from the media were of end-of-life care. Or even in obituaries, for example, reading the newspaper, it was always palliative care as so-and-so uh, died in palliative care in a unit, for example. So we, and the media to some extent, but we health professionals are responsible for creating this image of palliative care in, in patients' minds. That, that's quite a striking thing to learn. So then how did patient and caregivers say they felt when health professionals first proposed that palliative care be part of their management? So they were almost always frightened, even even being recruited. So for the for the intervention group, they were being recruited into a study where a palliative care clinic was part of the intervention. And even that 
was for them a very frightening experience. Oh my goodness, does that mean that I'm dying? Does that mean that I'm right at the end? Is there something you haven't been telling me? So they felt shocked and afraid. And the control group as well said that, that palliative care was something that they were trying to avoid and resist and not think about. But interestingly, in the intervention group, once palliative care had been explained to them, then they were fine with it. Obviously, they participated in this randomized controlled trial and also completed it. So once it was explained to them that, oh, no, no, it doesn't mean that you're dying. It's just a team that's extra part of your care to improve your quality of life. Then they thought, well, you know, why didn't anyone think of this before? This is a fantastic idea. And yes, I'd like to uh, participate. So that's important as well for us as healthcare providers um, is that there is this stigma associated with palliative care. But with a few sentences, we can undo that stigma or at least alleviate it. So tell us a bit more about that. You've already mentioned that in the original trial, the early intervention group had benefits in terms of quality of life. But it also, as you've just said, changed their impression of what palliative care was. What were the attitudes towards palliative care created in the early intervention group that differed from the control group exactly? So the control group had the same impression, not surprisingly, because they didn't receive an intervention. So their, their impressions were, were those that I've just described. The intervention group felt, I should first say, tremendously grateful that the, for the care that they received by the palliative care uh, team and, and felt that it improved their pain control, um, their care at home, improved their coping with their illness, so that they had benefited in many different ways. And they also saw palliative care as being now more of a long term, so that it wasn't just at the end of life that this was a palliative care when they were still actively receiving treatment. And they described it as being a new normal. So they now, it had normalized palliative care for them and made it part of uh, the care that they usually received at the hospital. They went to see their surgical oncologist, their radiation oncologist, um, they went to receive chemotherapy, and they went to see their palliative care physician, and that just was part of their experience at the hospital. Though I should still add that even those, even saying that they felt tremendously grateful for the care they had received, many still felt very uncomfortable with the term palliative care, especially when talking with others. So they said, you know, I know now that palliative care is an end-of-life care, but nobody around me knows that. My relatives and my family don't know that. So I don't actually call my palliative care doctor my palliative care doctor when I'm talking to others. Rather, they refer to their palliative care physician as their symptom control specialist or their pain doctor or some doctor that I see at Princess Margaret. So they're very uncomfortable uh, discussing palliative care or using the term palliative care with others who aren't as familiar with the new definition of palliative care. You explicitly asked patients how they felt about the idea of renaming or reframing the term palliative care. It seems patients were starting to do that all of their own accord. Uh, yes, yes, they were, exactly. And, and we did ask them about the value of renaming or, or reframing uh, palliative care and, and what they thought would be, would be appropriate there, whether they, they thought that the name palliative care should be changed to something else. Uh, the control group thought that was a really silly idea. They equated palliative care with end-of-life care, and they said, you know, that's what it is. Palliative care is death, and what's the point of changing the name? It would still be death. But they hadn't experienced early palliative care. 
So, and the intervention group, there was a small proportion who also thought that, who thought that uh, palliative care is end-of-life care and people should just smarten up and realize that and, um, and not deny death, so to speak, and realize that they're dying and accept it and saw no value in renaming palliative care. So, but that was a small pr proportion of the intervention group. The majority thought that palliative care should at the very least be rebranded so that others should understand and the public at large should understand that palliative care is not just end-of-life care, um, but is a care that improves quality of life throughout the course of the illness and that this should be publicized in some way. And at the very least, that physicians and nurses in the hospital um, should explain it in that way. Um, and then there was also a very vocal group among the intervention group that thought that the name palliative care should be changed to supportive care. And that uh, there was one patient, for example, who said, you know, I'm 65 years old. I've known my whole life that palliative care is end of life care. You're not going to change that for me with a four month study. Um, and for me to think of it as anything but end of life, you would have to change the name. And there have been, has been sort of a movement or a suggestion um, in the palliative care literature and especially in the oncology palliative care literature to change the name to supportive care. And patients and caregivers didn't really have an idea themselves about what the new, new name should be. They thought that should be up to us as medical professionals. But uh, they, they reacted when we suggested, uh, after asking them for their own suggestions, when we suggested the name supportive care, there was agreement that that would be a good good name, though some people thought it would be too vague. Um, but those who thought that the name should be changed did embrace the term uh, supportive care. So it seems like this intervention was effective in bringing patients to the concept of palliative care that we want them to have, which is remarkable. I want to ask, how do you think it did that? I mean, is it just the context of delivering it early that brings patients to a different realization of it because they recognize they're not at the end? Or is it the manner in which, as part of this intervention, uh, palliative care was explained to them by health professionals that made the difference? I think it's probably a bit of uh, a bit of both. When in practice, so I'm a practicing palliative care physician and internist, um, and I work in a palliative care clinic. So in practice, when patients come to us, they have much the attitudes that these patients in and caregivers uh, in the study described. They're afraid. Uh, they're anxious and they're wondering, you know, is this doctor just going to talk to me about dying? And then they're very pleasantly surprised after the first visit when that's not what we do, when we when we talk to them about how we can help them, how we can meet them where they are in terms of dealing and coping um, with their illness and how we can help them with symptom control. So it is it is very much um, a part of the intervention to explain, and, and part of palliative care, to explain what palliative care is. But their attitude did change, actually, even initially, with just a description of what palliative care is by either their oncologist, who was referring them to the study, or by the study personnel, who described to them, just in a few words, what palliative care is. Because if they thought that palliative care was just end-of-life care, none of these patients uh, or their caregivers would have agreed to participate in the study because they really didn't see themselves as being at the end of life. So it was necessary, just as it is for any oncologist or other physician referring to palliative care, it was necessary to describe 
uh, what palliative care is before they participated in the study. So it was a little bit at the beginning in the recruitment process, and then very much during the care that their definition changed. So how should we change what we do as, as health professionals to uh, avoid being part of the problem, as your data show, of creating negative impressions of palliative care and instead creating the positive impressions that were seen in your randomized trial? So I think our job is to normalize palliative care and present it not as an alternative. Either you receive uh, more chemotherapy or either you receive this uh, clinical trial of a new treatment or you see, receive palliative care, but as an integrated part of excellent care for all patients, uh, including improving their physical, social, psychological, functional, and spiritual quality of life using an interdisciplinary team. So it should be woven in to the care that every patient receives. Now, not every patient is going to be able to see a palliative care physician, which is why it's important to educate oncologists and educate family physicians and other primary care providers on how to provide basics of symptom control, of psychological support, referrals of nurses in the community to, to visit patients at home, of hospice support at home, so that that care is woven into our everyday practice. And it's not seen as an either or, um, but as a complete package of excellent care for patients and their families. One thing is to, to make palliative care a, a more part of everyday practice, as you said. But do we also need to do something about our, our, our attitudes and the, the subconscious impressions that we project to our patients when we talk about this? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's a bit confusing because palliative care was originally defined as end-of-life care, mainly for cancer patients. And that's how it arose in the 60s out of the hospice movement. And it has changed over time. And I think physicians are a bit, uh, and, and nurses and healthcare providers in general, are a bit stuck in the past and haven't sort of come along with the new redefinition of palliative care. So I think there's some education necessary um, and a shift is required in how we conceptualize palliative care and how we portray palliative care to patients and their families. Are you teaching our medical students this? Is there uh, space enough in the curriculum to, to be doing this at the present time? You know, there should always be more. There is more and more education, um, both at the medical school level and also at the uh, resident level. Um, it's not a required rotation, for example, for internists, which as an internist, I feel it should be. It's very relevant. Uh, death and dying is very relevant for all um, patients who, uh, who end up seeing an internist. So and, and many specialties. I mean, we all die eventually and our patients all die eventually. And to be able to provide excellent care for them as they get closer to the end of life is an extremely important thing for a physician to do. And I, I think we have sort of a squeamishness about death and dying in medicine and an avoidance of it as well. We see our duty as to cure, um, but our duty is also to comfort when cure isn't possible. And I think that's still often not taught enough, um, both in terms of proper symptom control in terms of being able to arrange proper social supports and seeing that that's our duty, if not to do ourselves, at least to refer, and also 
to have difficult conversations at the end of life with patients and not to be, we can't be squeamish about it ourselves. Our patients can be, but um, if we're squeamish about it ourselves, then, then that doesn't do a service for our patients. As you know, we're currently engaged in a society-wide conversation about physician-assisted death. Has this conversation altered how cancer patients perceive palliative care in any way that you can discern in your experience? So it's a bit early to tell, I think, but I think the whole conversation about assisted death is very much a conversation about a fear of dependency and wanting to have control at the end of life. And what we know from other areas where assisted dying is legal, such as in Oregon, most requests for assisted dying actually grow out of that, a fear of being dependent at the end of life and and wanting to have control over one's own life and feeling that that's a right. Um, and I, I don't think that cha it's changed how patients perceive palliative care so much, but hopefully I think it's bringing palliative care more to the forefront of the conversation um, because certainly we shouldn't be offering assisted dying to patients because they are not receiving appropriate palliative care. And we have a situation right now in Canada where only a minority of Canadians receive excellent palliative care. And I think that's what we should be campaigning for is the right for every Canadian to receive excellent care at the end of life, um, which will be relevant for all Canadians, 100% of them, rather than uh, campaigning for a right to assisted dying, or maybe in addition to a, a campaigning for a right to assisted dying, but that's gonna reflect maybe at the most 1% of Canadians who are eventually gonna ask for that, uh, whereas everyone's gonna die. So we all need to make sure that the care we receive at the end of life um, is excellent in all domains. We always say that the source we learn the most from as physicians is our patients themselves, and I, I think you study is a wonderful opportunity for us to, to learn about an important area of medicine from our patients and their caregivers. So thank you so much for, for sharing those data with us and for explaining it to us today. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with Dr. Camilla Zimmerman, head of the Palliative Care Program at UHN in Toronto, Associate Professor and Rose Family Chair in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, as well as Senior Scientist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. To read the research article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.